Hey, what's up, everybody? My name's MJ, and you're listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. On today's episode, we're going to be returning to the very beginning of when we started playing Commander. So, in order to be able to start talking about this extremely important subject, I'd like to bring my good friend, Coach J-Ro, back onto the podcast. Hey, J-Ro, how's it going today? Howdy-ho, I am uh, going pretty well, thanks. I am Coach J-Ro, also known as the Unsummoned Skull, and the uh, head of the Skull Symbol. And where can we find your content on the internet? Uh, so I have a Twitch channel at twitch.tv backslash uh, unsummoned skull. I'm on Twitter at coach underscore J underscore R-O. And then I also run the Discord server, the skull symbol. All right. So on today's episode, we are taking a page out of the Strixhaven book and we are going back to school. Again, more specifically, back to when we first learned how to play the EDH format. So again, for me personally, this was very early on in my time playing Magic. I'd only been playing Magic for a couple of months. So the format was a little bit difficult for me to get into for a lot of reasons based on that. But for you, j you came at it from a very, very different standpoint than I did. So obviously, we both had very different experiences in our first foray into this format. You have developed an interesting system of how to try to help newer players be able to get used to some of the things that they may see in the EDH metagame. So could you talk a little bit more about that? So one of the things I've done when I'm when a player uh, matriculates to the point of being uh, ready for EDH and is trying to figure out, okay, what is EDH like, is I created a three-deck metagame. So three decks that are designed to play well against each other and showcase a lot of what EDH is, both from the design and whimsy standpoints and from the gameplay and mechanical standpoints, such that they can see different ways to play and build and center decks around, around commanders. The three in particular that I have are uh, Danitha Capuchin uh, Voltron deck with uh, a number of zero and one mana costing uh, equipment. Danitha Capuchin reduces equipment's costs by one. So the zero and one mana uh, equipments are all zero costing and you can basically just put them all out. You then suit up Danitha, make her as big as you can. Uh, she also has the... Uh, so she has some extra abilities that... Uh, boost your life total and allow her to be a blocker. So that deck is really well designed in terms of showcasing how commanders can be offensive weapons that are low to the ground, difficult to interact with, and capable of racing other types of damage. Another deck in that gauntlet is my Zerolon of the Claw Dragon deck. It is a mono-red dragon deck with Zerolon's ability to pay a colorless and two red and tap it to search your library for a dragon, plop it onto the field, <clears throat> gains haste, you swing with it, and then you sack it at end of turn. So it's designed to showcase how to build around a tribe. So you find a type of creature in magic that you really like, 
You find as many examples of it as you can, and you basically jam it into a deck and see how they work together. Um, it also allows you to see the power of a commander that isn't a direct weapon or card advantage engine. It is a win con that makes the other cards in your deck better. Then the last one is Melek is a Paragon. It is a blue-red Spellslinger deck that is designed to use Melek's ability to look at the top card of your library and cast instants and sorceries, and then when you cast them that way, double them. So it uses that extra uh, advantage that it gains from one some from turning its one for ones into two for ones to try to keep in check both a single threat that keeps growing and a wide board that keeps slinging giant creatures. They require a different uh, different skill set and different answer set, and so that deck is designed to be able to turn the one-for-ones into two-for-ones and then make big, splashy spells. Like Rite of Replication Kicked, which would make five copies of a dragon, like from the dragon deck, using its own threats against it, and that would be copied from Melek's ability, which means it makes ten dragons instead. It also shows how if the dragon deck doesn't fire, the Melek deck loses a lot of value because copying something like uh, <clears throat> a so an equipment-based creature that's kind of tiny and needs to be suited up doesn't necessarily work as well. And if there's only legendary creatures, Rite of Replication really doesn't do very much because a legendary rule causes you to sacrifice them. So those three decks showcase a lot of what I believe EDH is about. <clears throat> yeah, and it definitely sounds like a very good first impression for a new player getting into the format because you are providing them three fairly standard ways to play. Again, this is something I'd wish I'd had when I got, first got to start playing the format because, again, I didn't have anything to compare uh, the little that I knew about the game into actually understanding how to build a halfway decent deck or work with some sort of strategy. Obviously, I barely knew what the colors did uh, well and what they didn't do very well, and I was just trying to find something that uh had a little bit of synergy but again it was definitely a lesson that would have been nice to have had from the very first time i tried to throw 100 cards together and attend a commander event so what gave you the so what gave you the inspiration for putting these together obviously we've talked on a previous episode about how you had the five monocolor 20 card decks uh Mm -hmm. how did that experience influence your building and design of these three specific decks? So in terms of the layering of teaching somebody how to play the game from the ground up, I would usually start with the color challenges, then uh, I would do a cube draft, just to make sure that they are understanding the different colors and learning how to evaluate cards. After that, they would do a real draft, where they get to keep the cards. Now, the sets in which they got to do that, uh, we did some Ixalan-related ones and some Rivals of Ixalan, but primarily it was Dominaria and War of the Spark, so that they would get legendary creatures and planeswalkers. 
So the next phase, once they started to build up a collection, because they would be able to keep whatever they drafted, uh, was building brawl decks. So using the command, so using commanders and fifty nine other cards that are singletons, and getting to learn how to play multi uh, multiplayer that way. Um, the next phase after that, and some players got to that point, was building commander decks. So once you have a 60-card Highlander deck built from cards that you drafted, then you see if you can add in 40 more, build, bring it up to a 100-card deck, and possibly switch out a Planeswalker for a legendary creature if you were using a Planeswalker for a commander in a brawl deck. And see if you can you know, see how powerful you can get that to be. And for the most part, they were building decks off of the cards that they happened to find, which is similar to how I started playing Commander. But I wanted them to see what uh, more refined Commander decks would look like because there was a, lo a local game store that was relatively close by that they could go to, and I didn't want them to go there and get stomped and not really understand what Commander's all about, because they were just playing with cards they found. So, the way that I learned how to play Commander was unfortunately kind of similar to the way that they learned, which is take the cards that you have and try to build a deck out of them. So, I started playing uh, just in general, like Kitchen Table Magic was uh, <clears throat> with Champions of Kamigawa. But when I went to college, uh, that was around the time that Lorwyn came out. In fact, Lorwyn was the first set I ever drafted. Uh, things started to change because people didn't just play casual pickup games. And so I started to play competitively. So Lorwyn block comes out, and then Zendikar comes out. Zendikar was awesome, and I... I drafted and bought boxes and got as much of that as I could because full art lands were awesome. They were new. They were really cool. I wanted as many of them as I could get. Then Worldway came out, and that kind of shifted my magic world because there was one particular big, bad boogeyman. Do you remember what it was? What was it? I <clears throat> one particular big bad boogeyman that came out of World Wake. Four mana commander, four abilities. You know, you're, so, you're, you're talking to someone who's only been playing for a couple of years, so <laughs> this is actually a really hard one for me. That's okay. It is one that is kind of synonymous with high-level magic and with uh, just being a boogeyman of different formats. Jace the Mind Sculptor. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yep. Jace the Vine Sculptor came out. I played one game against it. Figured out that they that when Jace the Vine Sculptor came out, that they also changed a Planeswalker. So previously, so with the new planes, with when Planeswalkers came out in Lorwyn, if you did something like Lightning Bolt, a Planeswalker that came out with three loyalty, they didn't get value off of it. One of the things that changed was. When you, make, when you cast a Planeswalker, you retain priority and can activate a loyalty ability. So if, I, if somebody casts Jace the Mind Sculptor and doesn't say that they are using the zero, and you try to bolt it, 
they can plus one it in response and it survives at one. I did not know that. Uh, my first time playing against it, I tried to bolt it when it came out. I thought it was so smart. This is the boogeyman of the format. I dealt with it with a one mana instant. No. I was wrong. And that card wound up <clears throat> switching my hand with my deck and milling me out. And there wasn't a darn thing I could do about it. Uh, so after that, I decided I wasn't going to continue trying to play Standard and Friday Night Magics anymore. And that was the only kind of magic that I knew people were playing. And so I thought, okay, I guess I'm going to have to stop playing. So this was about three years after I started. <clears throat> I was thinking, okay, I guess magic isn't something for me anymore. And then in the back room, I found a group of eight people playing this with these giant decks. I'm like, okay, this looks cool. Um, I found that it was Commander. I learned the rules of the format, and I set out to, by the, next, by the time they met the next week, have a Commander deck built. I basically took Doran the Siege Tower, which was a, a standard deck I already had, and put every green, white, and black card I could find into it. Doran was really only there for the colors, but I built a deck. What was it like for you building your first? My first deck, let's see. I mean, how do we want to define my first commander deck? I mean, the first hundred pile of hundred cards I put together, the first uh, one I actually put a little bit of thought into, or my first actual uh, real build? I mean, either or, or one then the other, if you'd like. Well, I'll I'll start with the so the again this is a little bit of trivia back on me, but the the first deck I will say I had that I actually put a little bit of thought into actually wasn't the first deck I ever played a commander game with. So back at Friday Night Magic at my local game store, again we didn't play competitively. It was just a chance to be able to go in play socially. And just it, it was a great opportunity for me to learn how to play the game, which was exactly necessary because if I had gotten curb stomped every week, you know, just trying to play with cards I pulled out of a booster pack, um, I, I would have quit long ago. So the fact that I was able to learn in a very low stress environment helped me develop some interesting uh, 60 card constructed builds. I mean, obviously, we didn't have any formats. We were just gathering whatever cards we could out of the singles bin and whatnot. So I had this 60-card zombie deck, mono-black zombies. I had a couple of lords in there, you know, a couple of death barons, cemetery reapers, things like that. Uh, my favorite card at the time, obviously, or at least a, a big-time card at the time, I did pull the Liliana Planeswalker out of War of its Spark pack. So I thought, okay, you know, I have a fairly decent zombie deck that's doing okay. I'm going to give this commander thing a try at another game store, which had commander, commander days on Sunday afternoons. And... So I decided, well, I've got all these mono-black zombies and, you know, some less good <laughs> mono-black cards. And I have exactly one uh, legendary creature that really fit with it, and that's Geth Lord of the Vault. Again, they had absolutely nothing to do with Geth, uh, the, my zombies, other than maybe a little bit of type. But I, I, I threw it together anyway, because I, I, I just wanted to learn about the format. And... 
that was a mistake. I, I will admit, uh, I had no clue what I was getting into because again, everyone at that store knew exactly what they were doing. I had been playing for a couple of months. I just had some cards thrown together into a deck. Uh, the, the, the next week I decided, okay, I'm going to actually try to do something synergistic. This is a terrible idea. I'm going to try to actually build something. And what ended up happening was I effectively threw three or pieces from three different 60 card decks that I had built into one. So yeah, you can tell how badly that ended up, but it, but it did allow me to have a cohesive deck sort of, that I was able to start learning how to play with. Of course, obviously, I got destroyed every single time out, but I figured it was a good learning experience. I got to see a whole lot of decks, some things that unfortunately scarred me very badly, um, one of those being combo game, uh, combo decks especially. especially uh, we'll just say that I had some experiences with people who didn't quite understand power level. Um, so, so if you hear me harping on that some, you'll, you'll see why. Uh, or oh yeah, I, I understand. My first, um, so my first several times uh, playing were against. Uh, they, they were in eight to sixteen player pods. It took a while for me to actually figure out that you could play it with four. But um, one of the, quite a few of the sixteen player pods would just end with Sharoon going infinite. Mm-hmm. So and, and, yeah, and especially since I. I didn't really understand the concepts of, of of really how the commander worked. I understood the basics of the format, but I didn't understand exactly how do you try to build off the synergy while also having a good amount of interaction with other people's decks. So building off of that, I started to eventually learn how to add more interaction to my decks, take out just some of the good stuff, and try to actually make the deck somewhat cohesive. And that process took a long time. Honestly, I'm still trying to learn how to do that now. But uh, in the last year, I've definitely built a lot better commander decks than I ever did when I was just starting out. Awesome. It's good to hear that you're learning and growing. Um, What are some of the newer decks that you've come up with? Ooh, the newer decks. Um, Let's see, what... Uh, obviously, I built that really interesting Selenia deck that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Life, Lay- Life Gain slash Life Loss deck uh, in white-black, so the, in the Orzhov color pie, using Selenia Dark Angel. Again, for those who haven't listened to the episode or need a refresher, Selenia Dark Angel is a 3-3 flying angel. Counts as an angel, according to the card. Um, and you pay two life to return her to your hand. You can do that at instant speed. So even though the deck technically doesn't need Selene at the helm because she's not really overly necessary for the deck to function by itself, I like the ability that I'm able to pay her activation cost to get some of the other pieces of the deck to fire. I do run some life loss effects. I run Villas. I run Font of Agonies. I run just various things that allow me to lose life. And the fact that I'm able to have something that loses me life in the command zone while also giving me an opportunity to have a little bit of card advantage uh, available to me in my hand, as well as just a 3-3 flyer in my hand available at all times, has really kept me uh, wanting to utilize her. And and in just the last week or two weeks since we've talked about it, I've actually had a couple of really long, really enjoyable games of that deck where I've really been able to utilize every single thing that I've learned about magic in in the course of the game. I've been able to get, at least most of the time, I've been able to get my card draw online, at least some portions of it, not obviously not all, getting my removal, 
my Wraths, I'm, I'm playing a ton of Toxic Deluge, keeping the board clean, using my life as a resource to be able to uh, clear the board, which, again, when I was first learning how to play, the concept of life as a resource did not make sense. Obviously, you only had 20 life. I was coming from uh, other games where, you know, the, it, it didn't make sense. Why would you ever want to discard your hand? Why would you ever want to use your life as a resource when you can just do something else, right? I mean, I, I, was, I was the kid who played Pokemon just by, you know, using all offensive attacks. I didn't care about stats. I just, if, if you attack at it enough, some, eventually your opponent will yield, right? And so I really didn't understand the finer nuances of the game in those early days. And I've started, as I've built more decks, um, trying to do different strategies. I've learned how to utilize the different color pairings. I've learned how to try to deal with some of the weaknesses in the colors that have... Uh, fewer resources available to them. I've tried to build quite a few different Boros decks, for instance, mostly because I enjoy Boros, mostly because I enjoy, really enjoy combat-based decks and token decks, but also because it's a personal challenge to me to try to figure out how can I create a very unique yet very consistent deck in those colors that provide me all the full gamut of deck-building possibilities. And Something uh, I built a my Rain Academy Chancellor deck, which uh, actually just got, which was uh, originally a Hannah Ships Navigator deck, which I just mentioned on my Lightning Build episode with Ryan a couple of days ago. Uh, that deck I originally set out just to feel, to know what it felt like to just draw a boatload of cards and just see what that felt like. So I, with that in mind, I decided to throw a whole bunch of card draw pieces in there again I'm, I'm not trying to really hit the end of my deck I'm, I, I'm not I do have lab man in there but again I'm not at aggressively trying to get there if I win I win that's great but it's going to take me 15 turns to get there if I do so it's kind of just about getting incremental value utilizing a lot of creatures to get larger whenever I draw cards and just trying to bash people's face in with those so trying to utilize my favorite strategy which is combat but also trying to figure out in different ways to gain incremental value. Uh, let's see, I've also, I, I, I've run mill decks, I've run wheels decks, they sucked, but again, they allowed me to understand how those strategies work, so when I deal with them, I know what to expect. Obviously, I just ran into a very, very aggressive uh, mill deck the other day, where, you know, we died way too early, on that one, but I saw where the combo was coming from before we died, uh, before the entire rest of the table died, so at least I was able to identify how I was going to die, and if I had had removal in my hand, I would have done something about it. So the fact that I've gained all this experience by trying different strategies, trying different cards, new commanders, and really finding my groove as a deck builder, as a brewer, has really advanced in the last two years since I started in earnest just tossing a whole pile of cards together at least now i understand the fundamentals of the game the concepts of the game and then what i'm trying to get out of it so what are you trying to get out of it ah that that's the real that's the real trick isn't it um what i'm trying to get out of commander is the opportunity to try to be able to do something really awesome with a deck in a different way than i did with my last deck so each one of my decks has a slightly different hook to it. I don't like to build two decks that are extremely similar unless they're in a different color pairing. So for instance, I have had a Aristocrats deck with Queen Marchesa at the helm, uh, but again, 
since uh, I haven't really played that much lately. It's kind of fallen into disrepair. I've scavenged it for parts for various things. And so having another Aristocrats deck around, I do have another one, but it doesn't feel like a priority to play that all that often because I just don't like having two of one kind of deck unless absolutely necessary. I've got a Voltron deck. I've got one that's I would consider to be like a 75% Voltron deck with Bruno Light of Alabaster. That's another one that I built recently using just a whole bunch of spare parts that I had lying around because Bruno just allows you to just dredge out a whole bunch of enchantments uh, or specifically out of your hand and out of your graveyard, attach to her, and then swing. But again, it's not a complete Voltron deck because I do have other creatures in the deck that are basically don't require Bruna to even be on the battlefield to be able to equip these things too. So I've tried to just find different ways to be able to, to utilize the cards and strategies that I have to be able to ultimately just beat my opponent's face in. I have mono, I have a kind of a mono green style Stompy deck. I have my Selenia deck where ultimately I'm trying to whittle people's life totals down over time, utilizing large creatures, utilizing reanimation effects to bring large creatures out of my graveyard and just beat people in, in the face. Um, my rain deck, I'm trying to draw a whole bunch of cards, get a whole bunch of large creatures on the battlefield, and then sneak them through for damage. I've just got a whole bunch of different things that can come from different angles. And again, if I ever want to pull my, pull my Aristocrats deck out, I have ways to be able to kill people utilizing the standard Aristocrats strategies. I had a wheel deck once that was obviously utilizing... All the, the payoffs, the discard payoffs. I've got a discard deck that uh, that tries to whittle people down by drawing a whole bunch of cards and then being able to discard those for value to creatures on the field, pump them, you know, sands, repeat. Just using combat in so many different ways from so many different color combinations and strategies on how to get there so that even though I'm doing the exact same thing ultimately, which is trying to win via combat damage, I'm trying to come at it from so many different angles that every time I pick up a deck, I feel like I'm getting a new experience, even though the endpoint ends up being the same. Have you tried Spellslinger before? I haven't really. It's That was one of the things where I've never quite found a commander or a deck that's really worked for me. Um, it, it's one of those, it, I'm definitely not against trying it, I just, again, in the way that I build, I haven't found a very good shell that really works with my deck-building philosophy for it yet. What about Brutaclad? Hmm, that, that's certainly possible. I'm trying, I did have a, a Joyra Weather-like Captain deck, but I've, unfortunately, as and, and this definitely goes into my experiences as a newer player as well, is the fact that if you choose popular commanders like Joyra, People are going to target you, even though you can guarantee them that you're not playing that deck. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, I have never played a combo one time. I personally don't find combos to be all that enjoyable. I'd rather try to put the pieces together over time, try to do tempo, and just see if I can get incremental value over time, and again, beat people's faces in, because that's how I learned, that's how I prefer how to play the game. But unfortunately, would... in order to be able to do that in a Joyra deck, you kind of have to rely on a few creatures, and if those get removed, you're hosed. So, okay. and then people do target you because they hate that commander. They've had bad experiences happen to them from other games that they've had, and they end up unfairly targeting you. I effectively tore my Kess deck apart 
after being picked on at a Magic Fest, after telling the other players that, hey, this is not that deck, I'm just trying to do some wheels things here. Again, my my deck was not very strong. It had good wheels pieces in there, but had no way to find them at will. I wasn't tutoring. I wasn't really doing much of anything. It was a really bad deck, but they still targeted me anyway, and it really frustrated me. So I've tried to find different ways to kind of bring the power of the commander back a little bit so that I'm not all, so I don't always have a bullseye on the back of my head, if that makes sense. Okay. The reason why I suggested Bruticlat is because you can do things like play Hordling Outburst, which puts a lot of bodies out, and then have Bruticlad turn them into uh, whatever the largest token is that you have. So you can have a beatdown strategy while playing mostly instants and sorceries and still making a board. It's just a way of looking at an archetype that you might not have played in a different way. Similar to how I made Mono Blue Aristocrats. That's fair, yeah. Kind of color shifting the Stompy strategy and using something unique that that commander does that I think could be fun for you. Hmm, interesting. I mean, I do have a copy of Bruticlad in my uh, my box somewhere. I actually have to find it, come to think of it. Some, something happened to my Joyra deck recently. I took it apart, and now I can't find any of the pieces for some reason, so that'll have to wait until I find it. There's also something to say for finding new ways to use old commanders. Uh, for example, my uh, Locust God deck uh, draws a lot of hate because it plays Locust God. Because that's a card that people don't like to see. So, I thought about changing it to Bruticlad. Then I thought about, okay, what if I just change what the deck does to make it more exciting? And so, I put uh, Polymorph effects into it. And so now it's not just wheeling and making tokens and annoying people. It's making bodies that can be polymorphed away. And I, I don't play Locust God until I can draw a card immediate or draw a card with an instant and be able to get some bodies out. I could even polymorph the Locust God itself. So I made it less about the Locust God and made it so that I didn't have to have the Locust God out for at least not for as long. And I sort of managed to shift the way that people thought about the deck to one that they would actually want to play against again because it was exciting. Yeah. So that and, is kind of another way. Oh. Yeah, that's that's definitely an interesting way to look at it. And I'm still trying to personally learn you know, some points dealing with threats, threat assessment, trying to figure out when to play my commander, you know, the, just the things that we, in some ways as players, will never fully perfect. I made a boneheaded move yesterday that if you've seen me on Twitter, I should have played Chaos Warp when I had red mana available to destroy an enchantment that killed me on the next turn rotation. Um, that is not exactly the kind of moment that really you want to remember, but it's the, the next time you're in that sort of situation, if you have that card in hand, you know you're going to die the next turn, you use it. It's it, just things like that that I'm still learning as a player. I'm still really new at all this, so the fact that I've come this far this quickly is actually quite amazing when, when you consider how bad I was at the very beginning, and now I can actually be fairly competitive in, in most situations, as long as things fall right. Obviously, I'm not making the most powerful decks. That's by choice. 
but I do try to run fairly good cards, fairly good strategies, and, you know, try to fill in wherever I can with cards that fit more my high-risk, high-reward kind of gambler lifestyle that I enjoy as a player. That is kind of where the skull symbol comes in. I'm going to put in another plug for that because I'm really proud of what's, what, what the skull symbol has become. I, I say what the skull symbol has become because I, I separate it from me at this point because it is a community and it's not just me. Uh, but the deck discussions are probably more uh, active than even the LFG part of the server, which is what I created it for. It's they're really active. In fact, there's somebody currently building a deck. I believe uh, Zynum's currently building a deck mm-hmm. uh, in in there. So it's awesome to see how the community is able to help each other that way. I go out to type something and somebody's already responded. Somebody misspells a card name and someone else has already typed it in and there's a link to the card. And that's a really cool way that. <clears throat> communities can help work together to build decks um and if you're a newer player you can always run things by people in there to see if somebody has a card idea to pitch or you can post a link in there and ask somebody what they think and yeah. pretty much any time of day someone's going to respond yeah and, and and that's something that i found interesting ever since the the covid pandemic hit and we've all been getting online a whole lot more is I was obviously very petrified of asking anyone for advice when I was just getting started because I didn't want to admit that I was new. Everyone else who'd been, who was playing at the game store, they've been playing for a long time. They knew what the cards did. They understand what their decks, what other people's decks did. And I was just trying to come in there and survive. It was more about trying to stay, stay afloat more than it was having fun for those first few months. And I would never ask anyone for advice because, again... Most most of the players at those stores, unfortunately, they had their expectations already set. And if you ask for ways to improve the deck, they would probably tell you just throw the whole deck out and start again. So the fact that we have the ability now, I feel we have more people online than ever uh, with discords like yours, like the Skull Symbol, to be able to just you know collegially talk about cards and about decks without drawing that same kind of side eye that you would potentially get from someone at your game store who, you know, might be stuck in their ways. I'm obviously not trying to put anyone in a particular box. I was just trying to say as a new player, I didn't necessarily feel all the most welcome if for with certain people. And I, I just wanted to kind of exist in space. But I feel like now with the, with the discords, with the, with more people online that there are good communities to be able to go find uh, cards that you need, just you know, pitch strategies off and just get good advice instead of just being told to get better cards. Yeah, um, and especially with regards to the get better cards part because we've been working on um, Bubblegum Magic, which is, uh, other than the Commander, every, every other card costs 25 cents or less. Those decks are relatively powerful, and you can do every job that needs to be done with a, in a deck that costs maybe 10, 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. You can make a fairly strong, streamlined deck for almost nothing. Yeah, because there is 
there is so much overlap within Magic's card history that there is pretty much every version of any effect available to you at low price points. That's when I did my episode on budget decks a month or two ago, back when I had uh, Carter the Naya guy on to talk about decks $50 or less. That's really how I've uh, tried to approach most of my decks is the fact I'd want them to remain somewhat competitive. They're always going to be roughly about the same uh, power if we want to, again, if we want to use that kind of term. But again, I do try to always choose the under underplayed cards, the cheaper cards versus the more expensive effects. Sure, they're not as good, but honestly, I'm I'm not expecting to go into a ton of games with uh, the expectation that I have the best cards. I'm typically trying to make things work from by bringing my deck up to the level of the rest of the group instead of trying to bring it down. I I guess it's just my way of trying to play. My, my personal style of build, building and playing, I suppose. One of the lessons that I have learned since I decided to make the Unsummon Skull Persona and build all these decks that use different versions of Unsummon is the... Um, I started making what's called the job system. So there are certain jobs that every deck of mine does, and when I eventually start my deck, my, uh, my deck tech uh, channel, I'll, I'll more clearly delineate how that works. But suffice it to say, finding functional reprints or or a number of cards that have the same or similar effects creates that feeling of having a tutor in your deck. It makes your deck more consistent, which in a format that is as random as Elder Dragon Highlander, a 100-card Highlander format where you have a small percentage of seeing a given card in a game, it makes it so that you get the effect you want when you want it, and so that you can build your deck to be thematic and functional. That's one of the reasons why I have the Danitha Capuchin deck for a new player to look at. Because it has so many just generic 0 and 1 mana art, uh, equipments, it, it teaches them the lesson of how important it is to find cards that do the same or similar thing. Because you know you're going to get a certain amount of equipment in, in your opening hand. And in that deck, it really doesn't matter what they do. Except you want them to influence power or toughness in some way. So that sort of a deck shows how important it is to find cards that do the same or similar effect. And I've also found, again, that online resources like Scryfall, like EDH, HREC, things like that are great for if you know what you want to get out of a card, but you are scared by the price point. So again, I'm going to utilize the example of my Demonic Tutor, which, again, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I run my Demonic Tutor in a very cheeky way in an otherwise extremely budget deck. I have a Voltron deck that, you know, most of the cards in there, I mean, over... It began as like a $10 to $15 deck because I just wanted to throw a whole bunch of super cheap uh, artifacts in there. And it, it, I, I have added a few more expensive cards in there. But effectively, there's nothing like dropping a Demonic Tutor, a four, which is a $40 to $50 card now, to fetch a $0.15 cent artifact. I mean, there's just some in, level of enjoyment of doing that. But again, do I need the Demonic Tutor in that deck? No. I, I kind of just run it as an aesthetic more as a joke than anything within that deck but yes 
if you're looking for any specific sort of effect, you don't need Demonic Tutor. You can always get Diabolic Tutor if you absolutely need a tutor, or you just don't worry about it. There are so many things you can do just by trying to downshift your power a little bit, uh, and, and also definitely downshifting the price, too, is that you don't always need the most powerful cards. Just play what really makes you happy in the end. And there's a ton of cards out there that people always overlook. I mean, I, I just... Uh, talking about Bolt Bend versus Deflecting SWAT yesterday on, on Twitter. And I've, I've stumped for Bolt Bend, which allows you to change the target of a spell or ability for three and a red for an instant, but it costs three less if you control a creature with, uh, I think, believe, power four or more. I th yeah, I think it was that. And that card costs, you know, 25 cents, let's say. And Deflecting SWAT costs 30 at this point. So... Is, is it going to be as nice in all in all uh, phases of the game? Maybe not. But is it going to be good in a lot of situations? Sure. And it's going to save you almost $30. I mean, there is basically an ability, even divination, frankly, if you absolutely need a card draw spell, three mana for two cards of sorcery speed is not a bad thing. People people crap on that card all the time. and It's not the greatest, but it's, if you have that in your hand or harmonize, for instance, you know what you're getting right off the bat, and it's much cheaper than trying to trying to go out and get a, a more expensive draw spell that might set you back five, six bucks. I mean, just, just look at uh, Preordain, where that is. And all of a sudden, well, you know, if you're trying to build a budget deck, maybe Divination isn't the worst thing. It's also helpful to look at the mana value of the commander that you're playing and see how that impacts some of the decisions that you make. For example, uh, in uh, a commander deck that has a six mana commander, like say Rorikthar, going turn to uh, my so maybe Rorikthar is not my my Rorikthar is fine for this, but most Rorikthars won't be a great example for it. But let's say you're trying to make Malak, and this is my so in my Malak deck, turn two Mindstone uh, means that turn three you have four mana available. You use that four mana to make uh, <clears throat> a Hedron Archive, and then the next turn you can make your commander and possibly even cast a Brainstorm off the top. So the specific mana rocks that you use can influence when you cast spells as well. And that's a smaller part of deck building, but it is part of these, uh, understanding what mana you need when in order to get your deck to function. Mm -hmm. But... And there's a lot we could go into in terms of specific deck building. Sure, sure. So I, I, I wanted to quickly pivot to ask you what your first actual intentional commander build was where you felt like you had enough grasp on the format to actually intelligently build a deck that wasn't, as you mentioned, just good stuff in Abzan Colors. Um, I guess I could say Zerolon because Zerolon was... Uh, <clears throat> So Zerolon, which is one of my beginner decks now, was the first time I made one that was streamlined enough that was basically Chuck Dragons at people. Um, the first one that I'm really proud of, though, it'll sound kind of weird because it wasn't until I started making the Unsummon decks, but Nyambi's Bounce House. And oddly enough, it went through a couple revisions before it got to the point where it is right now. Uh, but Nyambi's Bounce House was uh, so Nyambi herself, colors, or sorry, uh, sorry, no colors, a white and a blue flash bounce a creature, and you gain life equal to the toughness. 
and then also has uh, two colorless, a blue and a white discard, a... <clears throat> Make sure I'm reading it. No, one color, that's a blue and a white. Tap it, discard a legendary card to draw two cards. Plus Nyambi's bounce house because Nyambi bounces stuff. And because <clears throat> there's a number of other cards that bounce things. So there's a game in which I played the same Mana War, I think, four or five times. Just kept Mana Warring the same thing over and over and over again. It, it's capable of doing some silly things like that. It has a lot of legendary creatures and planeswalkers, which are also considered legendary permanent. And it's actually fairly powerful because it has so many strong legends. And honestly, I built that deck because I, I wanted to make the unsummons, find ways to unsummon things for different values. I didn't think I was going to make this many of them, of course. But I had a binder of uh, legends and said, you know what, this is a cool commander. Uh, I have a bunch of strong blue and white legendary creatures. Let's just jam them in a deck. Binder of legends. Binder of uh, Planeswalkers, jam everything into one. My removal effects are all bounce. My mass removal is mostly bounce. Um, so I just keep reusing the value, reusing the value. And it's more value-centered than most of my other decks, which are centered towards ramp and to a win-con, things like that. This was more just, I want to enjoy the game, enjoy being at the table with people, and flip some pancakes. That's a very interesting way to put it, but I get your point. Now you're gonna make every every time I'm gonna play against you and your unsummoned effects. Now I'm gonna think of fan. I'm gonna think of pancakes. I'm gonna blame you for it. Making me hungry, yeah, Jero. That goes back to uh, Rock's War Monk, which has a bunch of uh, balancing plates in the air, and we used to call them the pancake flipper. And so whenever something gets bounced to hand, we call it flipping a pancake. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Pancakes also make terrible frisbees, but you know, whatever. They're they're pancakes. Oh, according um, to American Dad, they make good plates. <laughs> I, I I guess so. We'll we'll go with that. So um, y'all are probably wondering what I would consider to be my first really intelligent build. I'm not going to say my first intelligent build was actually the first deck that I built for Commander because it's still really stank. <clears throat> so I'm gonna actually consider my Queen Marchesa deck to be my first real deck that I really put the time into to really figure out exactly what I needed in that deck to make. Because, again, my, my earliest decks, I understood strategy. I understood what I was trying to do. I just didn't do it very well. Again, I'm, I think it was more of the card selection than the piloting skill, although my piloting skill was really bad. Again, like I said, I was very risk-averse. I didn't want to take any risks. I didn't want to you know, I, I didn't want my spells to get countered. Obviously, I had a serious aversion to blue in those early days. I still sort of do. I try not to build a ton of blue decks, but that's beside the point. I did build that Marchesa deck thinking, um, how can I get some value off an aristocrat strategy utilizing this three-color uh, pairing? Which I, it was something new for me. I even Mar Mar Marchesa wasn't even the first commander. I actually was running Mathis Fiend Seeker at the very beginning because no Mardu commander is really trying to do what I was trying to do. Obviously, you know, Markov not uh, withstanding there because I wasn't playing with vampires. But the point was, is that I really thought about it for a long time. I was trying to figure out, okay, exactly how do I want to get to this endpoint, which is obviously doing the typical aristocrats thing. I want to be able to blood artist trigger everyone else to death. How do I do that? So I started figuring out, okay, here's some creatures that I can recur. 
You're going to want your uh, reassembling skeletons, sanitarium skeletons of the world. You're going to want some sacrifice outlets. And you're going to want uh, some payoffs for those. So you're going to want all the blood, uh, blood artist effect triggers. And then what do you do? You're going to want, uh, I threw in impact tremors. I uh, later on tossed a perforos in there to be able to get additional triggers whenever creatures entered the battlefield. I put some tokens in there to be able to get some fodder. I mean, I I threw in some fairly good wraths. You know, a Day of Judgment is in there. Uh, Swords to Plowshares, Path to Exile. You know, how, how do I deal with my opponent's threats, my opponent's creatures? And then I was trying to go from there. So, you know, it... it it was an interesting experience for me because it was the first deck that I really considered in all phases, again, J. Rose, you put it, of the game, is how do I get the right cards to do every job that I need to in that deck? And it ended up being a very solid deck, all things considered. I would typically pull that out when people said they wanted to play their most powerful decks because, again, it was my most powerful, my most focused deck. Now, now, obviously, that has changed, I think, now as I've become better at deck building, as I understand the, the themes of the game. Yes, there were a lot of weaknesses in that deck, but the, I still do consider it my first real build because it was really the first time that I sat down and asked myself, what am I really trying to get at? What, is the, what am I really trying to get out of this deck, and what is the ultimate end goal of this deck? Every other deck was basically, I want to put plus one, plus one counters on things. But I didn't have an end goal in mind. Where, what, what, what am I trying? I had a bunch of creatures that put plus one, plus one counters on each other or could have it put on them. But what was the end goal? I didn't have really any ways to give them trample. I didn't have any overrun effects, really. I had a few trample creatures, but that was it. And uh, my Kest deck was a hot mess. Again, it was a wheels deck, but I didn't really have a way to really draw the cards I needed. So I was dead in the water most of the time. And very, my, my mill deck was not very strong either, because again, I lacked the, the understanding of you need to throw card draw in your deck. So just things like that that I learned the hard way by not drawing cards, not understanding some of the tenets, and not really understanding the ultimate win condition. Um, I, I was always asking what if, but maybe not the question of how do I get there. And that's that's definitely something that I first started to, to work with in, in that specific Mardu deck was here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to get creatures. Here's how I'm going to kill creatures. And here's how I'm going to gain value. And I and I really do look back on that as my first good faith attempt to try to actually put together what I would consider to be a complete deck. Do I build all my decks complete like that? No. But again, not everything is exactly all cut and dried. Obviously, I'm not done with any deck ever. I'm always looking for ways to improve it. But sometimes I don't want to necessarily optimize a deck either. It really depends on the strategy, on the deck, and really what I'm trying to get out of it. Okay, so, uh, again, Jera, I want to thank you for being on the episode today. It's been great having you on here, as always. Absolutely, it's great to be here. All right, and where can people find you, again, for more information on your Discord server? So, my Discord server is the Skull Symbol. Um... <clears throat> So there's uh, there are join links to that. Additionally, you can uh, find me at, on Twitter at coach underscore j underscore r o, and if you send me a message on there, I'll send you a link to the skull symbol as well. Mm-hmm. And you can find your content on Twitter where? On Twitch at twitch.tv backslash unsummoned skull. All right, I, I, sorry, I should have said Twitch. I meant to say Twitch. I said okay, Twitter for some okay, reason. I understand. <laughs> you know, they, they are very close, so it's pretty easy they to uh, get them confused sometimes. 
Anyway, you can mm-hmm. find me on Twitter at, at MTG in quarantine. You can also find the back catalog of this podcast and other and the entire back catalog of my podcast on Spotify, Google, Apple, and wherever fine podcasts are found. So, again, you've been listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody.